welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Santa Fe Indian Market bills itself as the largest juried Native arts event in the world, and this year it kicks off the start of its second century in New Mexico's capital city. Artists are setting up their booths, the models are practicing their runway walks, and musicians are tuning their instruments. A thousand artists, hundreds of tribes, all represented here this weekend. We are live at the Southwest Association of Indian Arts, Santa Fe Indian Market, right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Native college students face many obstacles in higher education, including overwhelming costs and not feeling culturally connected on campus. But those behind a Wisconsin project say another barrier is not having support and seeking financial aid. Mike Moen has more. The University of Wisconsin-Madison Star Lab is using a half-million-dollar foundational grant to create a one-stop shop for Indigenous students to find scholarship programs and other forms of financial relief specifically geared for them. Project co-leader Gresham Collum says the searchable database will hopefully create more awareness that slipped by him when he was a college student. I'm a first descendant member of the Stockbridge Muncie Mohegan tribe, which means I'm not a formally enrolled member. And a lot of these scholarship policies are based on formal enrollment in a federally recognized tribe. But he later found out when his sister was enrolling that there was a handful of schools in the U.S. with free tuition programs for first descendant natives. Column says he hopes the effort also compels more higher ed institutions to expand opportunities and update policies. He notes it can go beyond traditional financial aid. A lot of indigenous students come from low-income areas where they have Pell Grant funding. And what I would like to see is a lot of these programs expand their offerings to cover costs like child care, health care, basic cost of living. Column predicts the database will not only be web-friendly, but mobile-friendly, too knowing that many Native students come from tribal areas with limited access to high-speed Internet. That was Mike Moen reporting. The Barbie doll has been getting much attention with the release last month of the Barbie movie. In Alaska, mother Angela Gonzalez and daughter Ermelina of Anchorage posted their doll titled Fish Camp Barbie on social media, which features an Athabascan Barbie doll dressed in traditional clothing. It's gained thousands of views. KNOM's Ava White reports. In this scene, a Barbie doll proudly wears a vibrant hot pink cusbuck, complemented by a beaded necklace, stylish moose hide cuffs, and headband. Positioned on a nearby table is a fish made from salmon skin aligned with beadwork. Barbie is holding an ulu, ready to skillfully prepare her fish. All clothing was handmade by Ermelina Gonzalez. Angela Gonzalez's family's fish camp was located along the Koyukuk River where her family frequented when she was a young girl. She has played with Barbie since she was a little kid and says that her grandmother used to make accessories for her dolls. You know, all the dolls would have their little umu and um, they would have like a little fish camp theme um, with fish rack. Angela Gonzalez explains the importance of sharing culture towards younger generations and why it's important for Alaska Native children to feel equally represented that they will be able to see themselves represented even though it's not for mass market or anything like that and that they can be inspired to um, create what 
they want to create, you know. Maybe they can make a fishnet or a dip net, you know, just something that can inspire them. Barbie has a reputation for embracing numerous roles, ranging from a CEO to a gymnast, a construction worker, and now a skilled fisherwoman at a subsistence camp. Through the innovative creation of their own Barbie scenes, Angela and Irmalina Gonzalez have succeeded in fashioning a compelling narrative focused on culture. Their efforts serve as an inspiring testament for young girls across various Alaska Native cultures, conveying the powerful message that they too can embody the spirit of Barbie in their own unique ways. Reporting from Nome, Alaska, I'm Ava White. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Live from the Montana Ballroom at the La Posada de Santa Fe Hotel, this is Native America Calling. We're here broadcasting live for this year's annual Santa Fe Indian Market. We'll also get a glimpse of an upcoming PBS series about Native Americans that features the talents of a number of Native producers, filmmakers, and artists. The market, put on by the Southwest Association of Indian Arts, is marking 101 years since its start in 1922. It is the premier event in the world for Native arts, jewelry, fashion, and film. Right now in the streets outside, more than 1,000 artists are getting ready to set up their booths for this weekend. And more than 100,000 collectors and arts enthusiasts from all over the world come to Santa Fe for this event every year. We welcome our audience to join today's discussion. We have a microphone set up. Ask a question, make a comment, come on up. We're also live streaming this event, so look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our webpage, NativeAmericaCalling.com. It's another beautiful morning here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I want to give a brief shout out to all of the folks who made it out this morning to join us here in the ballroom, live, in person. Really appreciate you folks joining us to be part of this live broadcast. It means so much to us. And with that, let's go ahead and meet our four guests who are joining us on the show today. First with us here at the hotel is Dawn Houle. She is the vice chair of the Southwestern Association of Indian Arts Board. She's also the president and CEO of Sun Singer Consulting, and she is Chippewa Cree. Dawn, welcome to the show. And joining us now is Mandolin Rainsong. She is a segment producer with the second season of the Native America series on PBS. She is Taos Pueblo. Mandolin, welcome to you as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. And also joining us is Jennifer Johns. She is the series producer for the Native America series. She is Danae. 
Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us today. And we also have Jason Garcia. He is a contemporary artist, and he is Santa Clara Pueblo. Jason, welcome to the show. Sangitamo, brother. Yeah, Sangitamo. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for the invitation to talk this morning. Let's go ahead and get this conversation started now. And I want to go ahead and begin with Don, who is seated here at my right. And Don, what's so exciting is you are relatively new to the SWIA board. Less than a year you've been on. So what drew you to this new leadership role? Thank you. Yes, it's only been a couple of months since I've been on the board, but I'm uh, definitely not new to tribal art and supporting uh, tribal artists. But it's really exciting to be part of the the mix and see how the magic happens once you get behind the curtain to to actually launch such a beautiful and celebratory event. So I'm really proud to be part of this organization. And let me be clear, I asked to be on this board, so hopefully <laughs> they treat me well, and they have so far. Well, that's great. And uh, I know you're a big arts enthusiast. In fact, you're a basket collector, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yeah, correct. And what you to basket collecting, and how long have you been doing that? Yeah, so I used to work for the Quinault Indian Nation as a forest manager, and one of their tribal elders, who's no longer with us, gifted me one of their um, most coveted cedar baskets with all of their beautiful clans and all the colors. I mean, I'm from Rocky Boy. We don't do any of that. So <laughs> it was definitely a learning experience, just the history and, and how this lady explained, you know, the effort. I mean, it's months of collecting cedar roots and the processing. And I thought, wow, you know, this is amazing. And then to come find out how much this thing was worth, and she just you know, was grateful that I was serving her, her people and, you know, managing their forest. So it just set me on a path to go and collect this. And so um, I go to a lot of estate sales where I live, and they have zero understanding of these baskets and the value. So I just got a uh, mohawk basket, and I paid $3 for it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I will not negotiate the price. I will pay you the $3 for this beautiful piece. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed woman is the queen, right? I think you could say. I'll bet yes. you're going to be doing some shopping this weekend, in fact. Absolutely. I budget all year just so I can afford this, <laughs> this event. Don, what's your favorite feature, one of your favorite features here at Market? One, I would say the camaraderie. So I, I, the first time live was last year for me at the 100-year um, celebration, but I could walk down any one of the booth aisles and bump into people I hadn't seen in a long time or meet new artists. So I just love that community. It's just, they're so embracing and um, willing to share how they express themselves through their art. So I, that's what I, I love about it. The best feature, of course, everybody loves the fry bread too. But. <laughs> <laughs> so many people from all over, not just the United States, but all over the world descend upon Santa Fe this weekend. It's so exciting. And New director at SWIA, new leadership. So any change of direction anticipated going forward? What's your thought? A little bit. So Jamie Schultz is our new executive director, but she's not new to the organization. She was already there and has been there for quite a while. She is the most charming and sweetest individual, and she's an operationals genius. And so when you have somebody that can guide a ship and turn it and make sure that we're on a path to support tribal artists, it's just, it's, it looks seamless, even though she works tirelessly at this. But, our, but because of the board being fairly new, too, there's quite a few uh, changes there. But also with her being at the helm, our vision is definitely to uplift and empower 
tribes, our tribal artists, how are we, what are their gaps and how do we help fill those gaps? Is it new programming? Is it a different stage where they can uh, better market their materials? So we're really exploring that. And, and next month we're actually going into a full board retreat, which I don't believe we've done in five years, and kind of hone that based on the feedback we're going to get from this show and then develop a, a really good strategy. So again, we're just supporting the Native artists in whatever way that, that this organization can. Market has just expanded so much. There's so much more going on than just the art show itself. There's live entertainment, there's films being released, there's fashion shows, just so many working parts. And I think you're being kind of modest, Dom, when you say that <laughs> you reached out to them because you've got a background with economic development, you've been involved with a lot of those projects. I'm sure they sought your expertise with regard to, to moving the direction of the organization forward. And I just want to ask you, because you almost have to sit back and think, I mean, what next, what more could, could SWIA become? It's already such a huge, huge event and has so many, so many great features. I mean, what's your thought in terms of expanding or, or maybe growing the event even more than it already is? That's a great question. And yes, I do business development for tribes. I build their economies from concept to contract. Um, you know, we can't pay for roads and healthcare just because the government's given us money. That does not, that, <laughs> there's not enough of that. And so you have to create different revenue streams. And to your question, I think one of the best ways that we can support tribal artists has given them another platform. And so we are exploring an online market. Um, there's a variety of other people out there that offer um, native jewelry, um, clothing, but there's not a concentrated Amazon market, if you will. There's some people that are trying this, but it's a big uplift. And so with 101 years under our belt, maybe that should be us that's helping support get, getting a wider audience so that if I can attend Indian market, I can go onto our online market and go and buy a beautiful piece of pottery or jewelry or earrings or clothes. <laughs> and with so many other art shows and festivals, I mean, what do you think it is about Santa Fe Indian Market, Dawn, that just catapults it to the top? What, it, what, is, what makes it so unique, so special, that it just continues to draw in these record numbers of people every year? Yeah, I've been, I met quite a few people on the airplane. I'm not um, shy by any stretch of the imagination. And it was, it was fascinating to hear we come as a family, and this is our 30th year here. And my grandma used to come every year, and it's been 80 years that our family's been doing this. And I'm like, what? Wow, this is, this is amazing. And so I think what catapults us out of the, the fray of all the other things that are happening in, in the Indian arts is that one, the longevity of, of our organization, but also it's the only 100% juried artist showcase, which is unique because now you get to see the, the best of the best and you get to actually go and meet them, shake their hand, it, to me, learn about how did you even you know, get the berries to get that blue or you know, <laughs> whatever they're, <laughs> however they're um, using all these raw materials and then as a natural resource, person, it's just fascinating because there's such a balance that we have to, um, we have to protect how they're creating these forms of art. And so you're getting new expressions of old techniques. So I guess that it just makes us yeah. truly the epic of, of all shows. And I think you folks do such a good job of balancing the history, the tradition, the legacy with the contemporary side as well. You just seamlessly find that 
niche, and it's so, so effective. Don, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. I know you've got a, a busy day, and I, and I wish you and all the other leadership there at Swaya great success this weekend. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Mandolin, I, I want to bring you into the conversation now. I'm so excited that you're able to join us, too, in this Native America series on PBS. You produced a segment about warriors. And for the Pueblos, the original warriors, they date back all the way to 1680 and, and the Pueblo Revolt. And this is just such a, a powerful, powerful piece of our history as Pueblo people. And uh, what do you want our listeners to understand about the Pueblo Revolt? We got about a minute before we got to go to break, but let's get you started. Um, I think what's important to understand about the Pueblo Revolt, first and foremost, in the warriors that um, put it together was that Pueblo people were not warlike people. We were not people that were violent. So when we went out and we fought for our culture, it was really um, what we had to do. And it was in the spirit of protecting what was sacred to us. Absolutely. I remember as a kid, you know, my grandfather would tell me stories and he'd say, we weren't, we were peaceful people, but, but if you pushed us far enough, we would fight. He would say, everybody fights if you push them hard enough. And I'll, I'll never forget that story when he would talk about, because he would tell me sometimes about little battles and things like that, that they would have out at Laguna way back in the day, hundreds of years ago. So Mandolin, we're going to have to take a, a short break here, but we're going to be right back. I'm going to talk more with Mandolin and our other guests. Here we are, Santa Fe Indian Market. Welcome everybody to our show. Stay with us right after this break. If you watch Reservation Dogs on Hulu, then you know Mato Wayuhi's music. He's the composer who sets the musical scene behind the storyline. He's also a singer and rapper whose music is winning accolades. We'll hear about his inspirations and what's next after the final season of Res Dogs. That's on the next Native America Calling. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling today. I'm Sean Spruce. We are here live at the Santa Fe Indian Market, marking more than a century on the plaza in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We're getting a feel for what's happening this year at the market, and we're also going to branch out into a discussion about a notable television series coming up. If anyone in our live audience here would like to ask a question or comment, please step up to the mic. We'll take your comments. Mandolin Rainsong is one of our guests today, segment producer with the Native America series on PBS. And Mandolin, you didn't start out as a segment producer. How did this role come about? Um, yeah, so I started out as an assistant, actually. Um, I'm a filmmaker, and I just needed a new job. So I took this job as an assistant. And um, originally, I was working with a producer um, to create a segment about the Pueblo Revolt, and it's an incredibly political story to try to put together. Um, and not everyone is comfortable doing that. Um, 
So he ended up leaving the project, um, and the story was kind of left hanging up in the air. Growing up, we didn't really like have a whole lot of conversation about the Pueblo Revolt in schools and stuff. Um, but I had known about it from like my dad, and um, I thought it was really important that we still tried to tell the story from our own point of view. So I just kind of kept putting myself in the hot seat of <laughs> let me tell this story, let me tell this story. It's my people's story. I want. I want to help them tell it. I'm so glad. And obviously, they just couldn't ignore you any longer. Like, hey, it's like staring them right in the face. This is the person that we need to lead this project. And I, I totally relate to what you're saying about the Pueblo Revolt not being as well known a story as some of the other classic uh, stories and, and accounts of, of Native history. And I, I'm so excited that it's finally getting that recognition because for people here in the Southwest, we're like, you know, it's such an amazing story and it has all the elements of tradition and culture, but yet there's also the drama involved and just, you know, the what those families had to go through and, and, and just how they alerted everybody. It was just such a, an amazing time and it, quite possibly this could now be the biggest stage that we have now for the Pueblo, the, the story of the Pueblo Revolt to be shared. So what are you thinking about in terms, obviously it's like a huge responsibility on your shoulders now to, to tell this story and tell it in a meaningful way, but um, what do you really want audiences to take away their understanding now of the Pueblo Revolt? Um, I think I want them to take away that Pueblo people are st still here for one thing, um, but that we're strong, incredibly passionate people and that one thing that makes our culture so beautiful and diverse is that we can encompass both a very peaceful, um, humble way of life as well as, you know, a warrior mentality um, to keep everything protected. Um, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's really auspicious that here we are in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We're celebrating Indian Market, but the, this was once a Pueblo village many, many, many years ago. And, and the plaza here was actually where a big part of that village was based. And anytime you go to anywhere in New Mexico and you see these towns with these plazas, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, that's what remains of a Pueblo village. So now here you are, Mandolin, you're part of this huge, huge project, this groundbreaking PBS special. And um, you must feel some, some sense of um, intrigue that here you are now telling this story 400 years later in Santa Fe. I mean, there, there was a war fought here. That's at the heart of this. Yeah. Um, it's an incredible responsibility. And with how it came about, it was kind of the same way that our whole fight to get our culture back also came about. Um, you know, like like I said, we weren't warlike people. The responsibility came to us because so much was being taken away. And so in telling the story and putting myself into a spot where I positioned myself to tell the story um, when I was not hired to do that, 
um, was kind of like the same thing, and it really kept me going and trying to get the story told the right way um, by the right people on our lands. Um, I grew up wanting to make films on the Pueblo, and when I was young, it was really unheard of to film at Taos. It was something that I always thought would just be like, um, just like a dream that wouldn't happen. And then I think that's one of the things that pushed me the most was the fact that I wanted to show how beautiful our homes are mm -hmm. and how amazing what we fought for still continues to be. Uh, you, you just expressed it so beautifully, Mandolin. And what about the community? Because I know that you're doing screenings in some of the Pueblos, and what's the feedback? Um, they really love it. It's definitely a tough episode, and it's a tough story, right? Um, but I think one of the main things I've been taking away from it is that it people leave feeling very empowered, and they leave feeling... Like they are seen and that they have this immense sense of pride for what our ancestors went through so we can keep going as we are. Um, it's kind of incredible to see that happen in real time. Absolutely. And where can listeners go to learn more about the series? Um, <laughs> They, they can um, go to our Facebook page. Um, we have uh, Providence Pictures has a Facebook page where we have been showing all of our community screenings where we're going around um, different communities that we've worked with. Mm -hmm. And then um, they also, uh, Providence Pictures also has a website that will that sharing, um, th that has the trailer up on it. Um, PBS also has um, wonderful um, trailers that show a little bit, an extended trailer of the series. So it's a wonderful opportunity, and we're happy to share that with uh, the team so you all can share it out. Jen, thank you for, for chiming in there. And uh, Madeline, I want to thank you again for joining us. Really excited about this new PBS uh, segment with the Native America series. and. Jen, um, you're also involved with, with the project. Uh, you are a series producer for, for Native America. And, uh, but your background is not originally in TV production, which I think is interesting. So how did you come about this role? Yeah, yeah, it, it's been a really interesting um, development. Uh, I come from the world of museums and libraries. I'm actually, my day job is as a senior program officer with the Institute of Museum and Library Services. It's a federal agency that provides support to the nation's libraries and museums and archives. Um, my portfolio consists of programs that award money to tribal libraries um, all across um, our United States. So it's a really interesting pathway. Um, uh, the executive producer, Gary Glassman, had heard a research presentation that I'd done at Brown University some years back talking about um, my uh, research with tribal libraries and he liked the way that I had developed the story around the data and the input that we got from tribes and the synthesis and analysis that came out of it and uh, when season two came around he reached out and had invited me and initially 
and he said, would you like to be an associate producer? And I said, I don't know what that means. Could you, <laughs> could you tell me a little bit more about that? And he said, it's research. And I said, oh, well, I can do that. Um, and I jumped on, and it was an amazing learning process. I'm really thankful to the Providence Pictures team, but also the Native um, producers and directors who obviously, like Mandolin, had more experience than myself, but were really generous in sharing their processes with me. And, and they... I think that part of this whole experience in the last, um, it's almost been almost 18 months, we started in December 2021, um, this whole process has developed my own voice and my own confidence in just um, understanding what I can bring to the table and my talents. And when I began at IMLS, um, I think I ended up landing quite a bit more confident than I had ever before, understanding um, what how important uh, our voice and our point of view was in, um, in all these policies and programs that affect our communities. So that really helped me understand how I could become a better um, federal uh, grant maker in that process. So it's been twofold. It's been wonderful to see it and learn. And Jen, about how many episodes are there for series two? Series two, like, episode, like series one, has four episodes. Um, we'll premiere Tuesday, uh, October 24th, um, and, we've, and it'll premiere every Tuesday after that, four Tuesdays in a row. All right. uh, Mandolin's episode, and, and the one that Jason also um, helped provide some amazing animation with, um, will be the second of the four that'll premiere. Can you share some highlights of some of the other episodes? Yeah, our first episode is really focused on um, indigenous design, the power of indigenous design. So we're talking with folks like Aaron Yazi, who helped design the, the uh, Mars rover bit, um, and just really how, where the designs come from, and, and we sort of dig into the background of each of our participants. Every hour has three to four different um, leads, stories that we go to, and we really try to open up our understanding of what Indian country is. You know, mm. I work as a federal grant maker. Every time I land in a community, I always say that's the center of Indian country when you land there. Um, so it's really wonderful opportunity to be in a national project like this and help people expand their understanding of Indian country. So we actually have some of our team out in Passamaquoddy, Indian Township, Maine, who are premiering, um, doing community screenings last night and today. Uh, and we're really excited to bring that back to the community. It was part of our hope um, in this series to work with our um, our communities and our participants to try to infuse their our vo their voice into it, co-vision this series and these stories. Uh, and it's a wonderful opportunity to sort of close the circle and go back to the communities and offer the stories to them first, um, like we did with the public communities last week. So it's... Um, it's wonderful. Our second episode will be focused on um, the the warrior spirit and it's about um, how different communities utilize um, activities and um, movement and just to help bring uh, to help talk about the traditions and um, knowledge that we have and to fight some of the the um, the current. Um, ills that we're dealing with as native mm -hmm. contemporary native people today. Um, the third episode is focused on um, language and what 
the, the power of bringing, um, utilizing things like archives to bring important pieces of our language back to community. And then the fourth episode is focused on uh, Native women and our, um, the power that we bring to our communities and the, the important work we're doing across the country for the better of the nation. And in addition to joining us here on Native America Calling Today, what else does the Native America PBS series have planned here, Friend and Market? Um, we will be, um, we were working with Vision Maker and unfortunately we were unable to um, take part in their, um, in their events, uh, but we're, we're excited to be partnered with them moving forward. Um, but we'll be working with the Pathways um, Film Festival and be showing uh, the Mandolin's episode, um, Warrior Spirit, Sunday at noon at their festival. Okay. Now, I understand that, that you even went so far as to make some recommendations for how Native storytellers can work with mainstream production companies and just work together more effectively and come up with a shared vision. Tell us about that, Jen. Yeah, I think that there's such an important conversation happening right now around diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And um, it, in the museum and library fields, we're talking about this robustly. What does this look like? Landing in media, it was really interesting to see a project like this, which I think was a lot more ambitious than they, to, to think about bringing um, a non-native production company who had done really well with the first season, but to bring in um, native creatives at every level. It took some learning on both ends. Um, this truly is a, a project that was co-visioned together, uh, but that process took some learning on both sides. And as we were beginning to close it out, there was a real strong thought process for myself, again, coming from museums and libraries and how we talk about this work, was how do we begin to show media uh, the importance of having um, diverse voices at the table? So we designed a survey um, for our particip participants, both native and not native to learn. And initially the project was really conceived with sort of helping folks uh, these native creatives who were um, who had a lot of experience, but um, being a part of a national PBS series was something that most hadn't been a part of, um, and sort of teaching them how th this process worked. But we, what I wanted to do was flip the script a little bit. How do we indigenize these PBS storytelling processes right. to include our voices, our ways of doing it, and the importance of relationships? in this storytelling, the importance of maintaining and protecting our participants in our communities that we worked with. So we really, um, we, we did this survey and what was a wonderful finding out of it was that there was obviously a lot of growth from our native um, and indigenous creatives, but there was a robust response also from our non-native um, colleagues who talked about understanding the importance of relationship understanding that um, relationships take time and wanting to be thoughtful of, of wanting um, more invested in making sure diverse voices were at the table and they came out of it with a wider understanding of it. And we wanted that on paper. So we created a report that which we um, gave to our funders so that we it's somewhere there out there um, as evidence of what can happen when you work together collaboratively um, and we for us the main goal was to to uplift community voice and really see our communities in the way that um, we got to vision and as a grant maker I can tell you the sort of impact 
that I saw in the communities last week is the stuff that we dream of. Mm-hmm. Um, th- to see communities react this way and be empowered and want to do more um, was really exciting. And, and that just speaks to the power of media and in in, in how we need to include voices at every level. And Jen, it sounds to me like you've been bit by the TV bug here, and <laughs> we might be seeing more. We might be seeing more from uh, from Jennifer Johns going forward with uh, this. I, I'm thinking this PBS series is just the tip of the iceberg here. So, anyway, we're gonna take another short break. Audience, what are you folks waiting for? We got a hot mic. It is ready to go. I want some questions up here. Somebody come up with anything you want to share with any of our guests today. Uh, we're gonna take a short break. When we come back. We're going to talk more with Jason Garcia. He is an artist from Santa Clara Pueblo, and uh, some of his artwork is featured predominantly in the PBS series Native America. So folks, stay with us. We will be right back. Native America Calling, live Santa Fe, New Mexico. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. We're glad you decided to listen in to Native America Calling today. I am Sean Spruce, and we're broadcasting live from Santa Fe, New Mexico, marking the 101st Indian Market. Still time to step up to their mic and let us know if you have a question or a comment. And with that, we have one willing question person here on the microphone, Clifton. Thank you for stepping up, Cliff. You know, the the Pueblo Revolt has always been one of my favorite stories, the first uh, revolt in the U.S. right here in New Mexico. And uh, two of my heroes are Pope and the corded string. And so I'm just curious to know how you're gonna portray the corded string and also the degree to which Pope was like the major instigator versus just one of the collaborators. Thank you. Um, I think that's a really hard question because from Pueblo to Pueblo, um, there's so much, I guess, mythology and history around Pope. We all have different stories about him. He stayed in some of our houses. He traveled from Pueblo to Pueblo. And at that point, there were so many different experiences with him as a Pueblo leader and um, a revolutionary um, that it's really hard to even begin to um, really like pin him down as a person. He was so many things to so many different people. Um, and still is. And then um, as far as like the knotted cords go, I think that was part of what made it really fun. We were really trying to figure out how you can um, talk about like this not very common tool, right? It was very clever that the Pueblos put together this way of communication that the Spaniards could not decode. Um, And one of the ways that we did that was with Jason's artwork and we also have this really beautiful scene of um, some Pueblo runners from Tezuque Pueblo um, handing a knotted deer hide cord to 
the younger generation of Tezuke Pueblo. And when we were filming it, I was just like filled with joy because that's what we do as Pueblo people, right? We, we get handed down our culture from our, from our elders and to have like a very strong visual of what that not just means within our culture, but means within what we went through in the Pueblo Revolt was really special. Thank you, Mandolin. And let's go ahead and bring Jason into the conversation. Now, Jason Garcia, artist from Santa Clara Pueblo, New Mexico. And Mandolin, you mentioned the knotted cord, which was used to, to count down the days before the revolt was supposed to happen. And that's how they communicated to all the other villages that on this specific day, this is when the revolt begins. And um, Jason, please, I mean, talk more. Tell us more about your artwork and, and how you contributed to the Pueblo Revolt segment for the the Native America PBS series. Yeah, so my contribution to the uh, episode Warrior Spirit was uh, a series of drawings um, that I provided to uh, the production team to create an animation. And this is a series that I've been working on since 2007. It's uh, the Tewa Tales of Suspense, and it's based on various uh, Tewa his historical events like the Pueblo Revolt, also has different uh, creation stories, and then also uh, has stories related to um, present day issues uh, that Tewa people face, you know, in modern 21st century, pre-contact, contact, contact um, a lot of history telling through uh, graphic illustrations. Uh, I've done different variations of the Tewa Tales of Suspense. I've done um, uh, uh, clay tiles, I'm, I'm primarily a ceramicist, but I also have a uh, degree in uh, printmaking as well too, so I've done uh, various uh, printmaking um, media using uh, Tewa Tells of Suspense as a subject. And then also, uh, this is the first time that it's been animated, where it's actually, um, you know, telling just a facet of the story. I mean, it's so huge, you could literally have four episodes of, you know, the Pueblo Revolt. And, and it didn't just, you know, end in, or it begin in 1680, it had started, you know, pre-contact, mm -hmm. contact, and then continued after uh, uh, De Vargas returned to Santa Fe, 1692, there were still other uh, revolts that happened, 1694, 1696, in this area here in uh, Tewa country. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really a good teaching tool for our youth. And, and uh, when I originally started the project, it was pretty much that of just uh, wanting to get an understanding for my own self, but then also to teach my kids, you know, uh, the story and our histories as well. And it's also worth noting that it was, it was such a successful revolt because they drew the invaders back. They, they set them back 20 years. Mm -hmm. It was a long time, a generation before they returned. And, uh, and Jason, you're from Santa Clara Pueblo, so I think you'll relate to this, because I, one of my grandmothers was from Oke Owenge, and um, whenever people would say Pope, she would always cringe, because she would say, in Tewa, his name was pronounced Poping, Poping. And she would always, always, every time she'd see a written Pope, no, that's not the way it's pronounced. So uh, just such a, a moving story. And Pueblo advocacy comic figures, I think that would be one way to describe your work, Jason. And, is anybody else doing Pueblo superheroes like this? I think there's a 
different artists that are doing, um, I guess you would say, Pueblo superheroes um, in that sense. I mean, you know, our, our, our creation stories, our um, stories of revolt, revolution, are, are very much superheroes. You know, our grandfathers, our mothers, our, our parents can be our superheroes as well, too. Um, so I think that's how, how, how do we elevate them to, you know, superhero status in that sense. So I think those are some of the things that, that I talk about in my work, that it's not just, you know, Pope as the, as the one individual, which, you know, the, the early, earlier um, listener had, had a question regarding that, you know, it just wasn't only Pope, it was, you know, a group of, of other individuals. Um, I think also uh, in regards to other Pueblo artists doing the work, uh, similar work, Diego Romero from Cochiti Pueblo, uh, Virgil Ortiz also from Cochiti Pueblo, uh, myself, um, and I think there's more, uh, there's others that are doing work in academic work, archeological work that are Pueblo, and uh, I think we're all in, in similar conversations with, with one another, we're drawing off of one another, one another's work. Um, so, you know, there's there's so many different ways of, of telling and sharing the story and it's not um, as hidden or maybe not as talked about as it was, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 60 years ago. Uh, I know the late Herman Aguayo uh, from Okeowinge, San Juan Pueblo had also said that, you know, when he was growing up, he had never heard about the Pueblo Revolt until he went to college in Chicago in the 1960s or 50s that he actually learned about, you know, the stories. So, you know, it's kind of interesting to hear, you know, how, how some of these things were kind of kept, you know, um, I guess quiet, which relates to historical and cultural trauma as well, too. So, you know, yeah. sometimes uh, really um, tragic things like that we don't really share too often, so. Well, it's just interesting because we're all familiar with the story of the pilgrims and some of these other classic conflicts uh, that, that happened maybe perhaps more towards the eastern or midwestern part of the country. But but this story, it's it's just so long overdue to be told in the way it is in, in such a broad audience as well. And, and Jason, I know that your artwork is also featured in the Warriors episode that Jen talked about earlier. And how do you think viewers will respond to seeing this strong native figure, this warrior standing up to, to conquistadors in, in the medium that you express it in as, a, as an artist? I think um, it's really empowering for all audiences of all different ages, cultures, because then again, you know, when you say, oh, the quote unquote first American revolution, you know, we, most people think Independence Day, but then also realizing that, okay, Pueblo Revolt happened in 1680. So I think there's kind of that understanding. Um, we had a viewing at the uh, old museum in Pewaukee Pueblo uh, on August 10th, which is the uh, 334th anniversary of the Pueblo Revolt. And we had, you know, a pretty uh, wide Pueblo audience and they were really um, enthusiastic and and happy and proud and you know sad. There are so many different emotions you know that came out of that episode, um, and and just I I, so <laughs> I sometimes don't think about what the response will be because it's still fresh. You know, I just saw the episode <laughs> last week, and so it's still absorbing. You know, I think I need a couple multiple viewings to to see it, but I think everybody will really find it amazing and uh, inspiring and, and also proud of the fact that, you know, our ancestors made the decisions uh, that they did, 
that still allow us to live here, you know, within mm -hmm. our sacred, sacred area, sacred Tewa landscape. Uh, like you said, the fact that we're still here in Santa Fe, Okapogeoinge is the translation for, or the uh, traditional Tewa name for Santa Fe, or Poge. And uh, the fact that we can say that and we know that, you know, is, is, is testament to our ancestors' you know, actions and choices 330 plus years ago. Well said, Jason. And were you into comic books as a kid or is it something you picked up later in life? Always, always, yeah? day one. <laughs> <laughs> and do you draw from some of those influences, that, you know, some of the classic comic book figures, you know, the Marvel people? In the, in yeah, DC if you look you at my work, you'll see a lot of uh, uh, inspiration, Jack Kirby, um, Hernandez Brothers, graphic novels, um, so movies, pop culture, so there's a lot of influence from that. And then also, again, uh, speaking with elders, doing my own research, and then also speaking with other uh, Pueblo scholars, and then also visiting um, the actual sites that a lot of some of these things happened. Um, it's, it's all influential and all comes into the work. So. Okay. And you'll be set up here at market this weekend? Yes, I'll be at the Santa Fe Indian Market this weekend. Uh, uh, POG123 is my booth number under the uh, east end of the uh, portal. So my family has been participating since the beginning, I guess you would say 101 years ago. And, um, you know, so multi-generation of uh, family members that have been in the uh, show since then. Um, been extremely fortunate that we're still under the Palace of the Governors. My family has been there uh, uh, about 50 years plus, so. Uh, under those spaces, so um, that's know, the prime a, real amazing. estate. Yeah, it's prime right? real estate. I mean, it's a, it's a, it is a very sacred spot for yeah. us. And then again, the fact that you know Ogapoge is Tewa Village and it is home, so that makes it even more significant to a lot of the uh, Pueblo people, a lot of the Tewa people here that come uh, to uh, show their work this weekend. Right on, Jason. Well, thank you also for joining us and, and continued success all. in all of your artwork and. Don, I want to pivot back to you because um, so much going on this weekend here in Santa Fe with Market. And I, I know that there's just a huge, huge increase in, in social media traffic with regard to how the market is, is shared and how it's marketed to other people that want to come or even people that, from, that, that aren't even here can still connect. So talk a little bit about how you folks have integrated social media and other tech uh, tools to make the market even bigger. Sure, so we actually have a dedicated team that helps guide you through the market. If you've never been here, it's overwhelming. Um, how do you focus on the beautiful art that you know Jason's talking about? And so we have used that platform to really reach a wider audience. But what I find interesting, and, and maybe Jason's doing this as well, is some of the artists are actually using social media to alert people to say you can only get these exclusive items at the booth at the show which of course you know is a draw it's a marketing <laughs> tactic which of course I'm following several of them to make sure that they don't sell out but it's you know it's just the power the of of this new platform now that we never had 50 years ago let alone 20 years ago um, and so it does reach a wider audience and then more specifically for Swaya the Indian Art Arts and Craft Board is um, doing new regulations. And so for us, how do you reach a larger group across, that's spread across the, the United States? And so we're using that platform also on the policy, the politics of being an Indian artist and sharing those type of awareness type of situations so everybody can participate and share their voice. 
Thanks, Don. We have time to take a question, and this is one of our most dedicated listeners, Patty. Uh, you'll hear her comment on Facebook all the time. Patty, please share your question or comment. Hi, Patty Armstrong from the Institute of American Indian Arts, also known as IAIA. And I will be staffing our table on the plaza Saturday and Sunday, and I'm wondering where we're going to find you, Sean, on Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> Well, I am here with my family, and I have, uh, my wife is actually celebrating her birthday today. Um, baby Brooke, if you're listening, happy birthday, I love you. And uh, we have a nine-year-old daughter, and, and she loves comics, and she loves animation, so we're definitely going to check out Jason's booth as well as some of the other events, and uh, just so much going on. We're going to check out Bear Grease tonight, I know that that uh, the, the musical is going to be this weekend as well. So I'm excited about that and, and so many other uh, big events that are planned. So we'll be here all weekend just mingling, intermixing, and I'm hoping to meet other, other listeners and other fans of the show as well. So thanks for that question there, Patty. Appreciate it. Well, folks, uh, we are going to have to wind it down here. We are just about running out of time. But again, I want to thank everybody who came in and, and made this production possible. Uh, great guests. And wouldn't be uh, a show without an audience today of dedicated listeners. So yeah, big round of applause for everybody who has helped make this possible today. Wonderful, wonderful. So let me go ahead and formally thank all of our guests that joined us today. Don Houle, Mandolin Rainsong, Jennifer Johns, and Jason Garcia for helping us celebrate the 101st Santa Fe Indian Market here this weekend on the plaza and around the plaza as well. Prime real estate in the ancient Tewa village here that is now Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, folks, we're going to be back again Monday, and uh, we'll hear from composer... Uh, a native composer who, among other things, provides the soundtrack for the Hulu series Reservation Dog. So check that out. That'll be on Monday on Native America Calling. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer in Albuquerque. Our sound engineer today is Bill Nineman and Isaac Chavez from Santa Fe AV. Kayla Reardon is the senior event facilitator. Show McPolin is our digital producer. We had live streaming help today from Alexis Salee. And thanks to Sarah Carath, events director with the La Posada de Santa Fe Hotel. Nola Days Moses is our distribution director. Bob Peterson, network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick, national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez, anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather, chief operations officer. And of course, president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, Jacqueline Salee. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Stay proud, stay safe, stay sovereign. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. SBA wants to see you win. They want to see you grow. They have been so helpful and so resourceful. Thanks to the SBA, my business is thriving today. Make sure you get in touch with SBA and you will definitely be on your way to a winning path. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Give kids their best shot at a healthy school year. Make sure their vaccinations are up to date. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit insurekidsnow.gov or call 
318-2596, a message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.